Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Slumber Party Massacre 2 is over. The weirdest things are happening to my face. has got some weird friends. I have got the fastest growing bit I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> I think your sweetheart's been taking too many diet pills. Here's a chicken sandwich if you want to She should have listened to her sister. Don't pick me all the way. Because when she and her band get ready to party. Do anything you want to. Good time. It's more than just a great time. I didn't know girls really did this stuff. It's Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now it's time for the fun part. He's in this house somewhere. Well, it's 9 o'clock and ready to rock. My motorcycle's out of the house. Because Slumber Party Massacre 2. If you go, don't go all the way. Oh God, anybody got any tranks? Andy, hi. Hi. So, Slumber Party Massacre 2, now you've seen it. Are you yes. excited? Are you glad? Do you feel relieved? I am actually excited to talk about this one. <laughs> and why? Do tell. Because this, in the context of um, a horror sequel... I felt like, you know what, they were actually not, I mean, there is a certain element of retread, but at the same time, they were actually trying to do something different with this one, and I certainly appreciated that. I appreciated that, too. This was definitely a swing. Uh, we should say, uh, if you uh, are not a member and missed our member uh, pre-chat, uh, members can join us to talk about certain subjects before the main show begins in the live stream, and we talked uh, today about movies that take place this is where the spoiler horn comes in. So stop stop it right now, because I'm about to say a thing that's going to spoil the movie, if you care. <laughs> Movies that take place in uh, a character's head and how well, what it takes for a movie to, to work well in that regard. And so uh, we're going to we're going to talk about that. Did, did that part surprise you that that this movie was ended up being more of a cerebral uh, experience than, um, you know, a, a literal one? Well, there were a lot of things that surprised me. That was definitely one of them. And also just like the way the film was structured was so different than what I was really expecting from a sequel about a, you know, a, a weird killer. This one yeah. went in such a strange direction that it was kind of a welcome surprise. I was like, wow, okay. I'm not sure what they're doing here, and I'm kind of down for it. So uh, so count me in as somebody who enjoys this crazy film. Oh, I can't wait to see what you how you rate it. Oh, my goodness. How am I going to sit still over the next hour? <laughs> well, this film was rated R upon its very, very limited release here in the States. 
I want to know, did they ever release any merch in the form of that prop guitar drill? I've got to say, I am shocked that that is not something that is discussed more often because it is one of the craziest killer tools that I have seen in a film that needs to be discussed more. It needs to be uh, done with cosplay more often. It is one of the most fantastic things ever invented. The the crazy, like, rock guitar drill 100% thing. It, I, it was bonkers. I loved it so much. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, I could not believe that they went to a place where we had this rock version of our killer who went around killing people with an electric guitar with a drill. <laughs> I know. Uh, it was fantastic. It was exactly what, uh, it was exactly what I needed. And I think that's a, uh, you know, talking about the driller killer in this movie is actually an important part of the fact that it's cerebral, right? This, this thing comes kind of out of nowhere and it is not the same killer as in the first movie, which not the same. Knowing killer, what this movie ends up being is should be a leading indicator. Weirdly enough, though, and I don't know what to make of this, if it's just because they're calling him the driller killer, which I just want to also say there is a 1979 film by Abel Ferreira called The Driller Killer, a black comedy slasher film that he made about a person who uh, a struggling artist in New York City who goes crazy and starts killing homeless people with a drill. That was another film before all of this. I don't know if there was ever any issue with the fact that this character has kind of become known as the Driller Killer. But just to clarify, there is a Driller Killer film that is completely unrelated to this series. Just want to put that out there. Right. And Brian's in the chat room reminding us of Body Double. Which also has the same thing. Killer with a drill. Yeah, but I, I guess I don't know. And I don't know if it's just because the killer is moniker is kind of the driller killer. But according to Wikipedia on the Massacre uh, franchise page, they actually say the Russ Thorne Hockstatter, the Driller Killer character, is the same in this and the first film, which, and apparently also in Sorority House Massacre 2 and 3, it's all this Russ Thorne character, which I think is crazy that it's all the same yeah. person, because there is really no defining characteristics similar between the killer in the last movie and the killer in this movie, other than the fact that a drill is involved from time to time. That's it. Right. <laughs> I don't remember ever being as amused by Russ in the previous film as I was in this one. No, for sure. Oh, my <laughs> God. No. Um, I I think that this one, they get away with it, right? This one, they get away with with this character being just bonkers because of the entire framing device of the of the film which you only get in hindsight it looks stupid until the end when you when for me at least all the pieces start to come together and you realize that you know our our principal character is the younger sister from the first movie and she this is how she is processing her own sort of trauma over this event that she she's growing up she is um you know she's she's changing emotionally and she is uh, and and this killer, because she knows how everything went down with the driller killer in the first movie, this is a manifestation of that killer that is sort of 
transplanted on top of her worldview and her experience of, of life. And this is her horror. And I think that for me actually works. And it makes this character so much more charismatic, so much more fun than the Russ Thorne we had in the first movie. Um, the whole rockabilly vibe, the incredible guitar with the drill, like all of that stuff really plays for me in, in terms of, of, you know, what they're going for with the, with the actual killer as related to her mental state that, that plays. Yeah. It really, it really surprised with just the weird vibe that we get from this. I mean, to a certain extent, there is a side of this killer appearing that I don't completely understand. Like, well, maybe I should say, because of who I thought Courtney was from the previous film. Like, I, I guess I didn't really, um, I didn't see how that this would be the manifestation of the killer in her mind. You know, like, why did it turn into this rockabilly 50s guy? The only connection really that I guess is that she and her friends, as we see, are, they, they're in a girl's rock group that, and we see them performing and stuff. And so there is this sense of her having this connection to rock where she's, you're playing it, but at the same time, like I never, it's 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 kind of a strange transplant transplanting of her passion for rock music and being in a band to now this killer is going to also be representative of that. Like there's an element there that I'm not sure I get, but I also just can't help but enjoy the fact that this killer is. Is a weird, like rock singer. It's it was very weird. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. But he he <laughs> he plays, man. He pulls it off. Uh, he's always he's always sort of there, right at their most sort of um, intimate moments. Uh, it, uh, the performer is Atanas Illich. Uh, the plays the Driller Killer, and I just. I just love it. What did you think of uh, our principal character, Crystal Bernard? Yeah, she's coming in as uh, Courtney, who we was was younger. I believe this takes place. It's like four years later or something after the first film, yeah. reportedly something like that. Um, and so, yeah, so now she is the high school student. She's no longer the um, the kid. Um, I really remember her from Happy Days. Is where I grew up happy with her. Happy days. Yeah. She what was, was she Casey in Cunningham. Happy Days? She was his little sister, wasn't she? Um, Ron's little sister? No. Ron Howard's little sister? No. That was Joni. Uh, well, she was she was at Cunningham. She was... Yeah. I thought she was a younger sister. She was only in 16 episodes. She must be a cousin. She played Casey Cunningham and Mickey. No, I I knew her from Wings. She was Helen Chapel for 172 straight episodes of the show Wings, and I loved that show. Uh, yeah, I never see it. No, yeah, she was. So she was Howard's niece. She moved in with Howard okay. and Marion after Joni left for Chicago, and I think it was this whole thing where they wanted to have that young vibe in the show. I, I still, um, yep, so, have to replace yeah, replace her, yeah. replace Joni. Yeah. So that's, but that's, that's, yeah. So she was a TV person. And, and I think that's probably, she also, it's a living a lot. 93 episodes of it. It's a living, which is a show I know I watched, but it's one, also one of those shows that I don't remember very well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't either. It's, that was empty calories for me. I'm sure I've watched it. 
it was the, like they're all work they're working as waitresses. waiters waiters and waitresses yeah. in a restaurant in a tower i think so yeah. um yeah so she's i don't know i think of her more as a tv person probably because of those things than any like i i look at her list of films and i'm like i don't know if i've watched any of her movies you know yeah no this this is officially it and wings that's what i remember uh her from and so it was a real surprise to see her uh in this just because i know her as as helen chapel and so that was a that was a huge surprise um but i you know i like her she's in terms of this kind of of movie i think she i think she plays that um she plays that uh, kind of damaged ingenue pretty well, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like, right, right. Um, she she sticks to she understood the assignment. Yeah. Well, and that's so. And the assignment, you know, specifically is you know she is this person who's dealing with trauma. Her sister is in an, in a mental institution half, after all the incidents that had happened in the first film, and this is our understanding of the film as it progresses. Right, her sister is in a mental institution. And her mom is kind of lost and distant and doesn't seem to be paying a ton of attention, forgot her birthday, as we learn. And so Courtney is still trying to deal with all of these issues kind of on her own. It's painted as if dad must not be in the picture, really. And so she has her group of friends. They, uh, you know, play their rock music together. There's this guy that she's interested in. And, uh, but then as things progress, and what's interesting about the film is like, we, we go to the house. Eventually they're going to this house where they're having the slumber party, which is one of their, uh, one of the girl's dad's house that he recently bought. It's pretty barren. There's really not much in it in the way of furniture or, or anything to make it look homely yet. Um, and, or homey, I should say, not homely, but, it, it's set up as this um, there. It really feels like a girl dealing with issues with her friends while also very much kind of the 80s sex comedy where the boys are coming over and we got all the sort of sex and stuff. It took as far as the kills go and we have our killer popping up periodically and we have some weird dream sequences and stuff of things happening. But I believe it was almost a full hour before we get uh, a kill. Yeah. You know, I mean, it took a long time before the kills actually start happening. And even to the point of this type of story with the sex and everything, it was almost a full half hour before we had nudity. And so I I don't know. I I guess I was just surprised with the type of film that this film was billed as and then what we ended up getting. And, And to that end, it's like I felt Crystal Bernard was kind of carrying the film and did a pretty good job of giving us something where it's like, okay, they're making this story of this girl who is dealing with trauma, trying to figure out her friendships, the relationships with boys and all this sort of stuff. And it played in an interesting way. So when you layer the, on top of this, the fact that this is actually happening, not even in Courtney's head, it's happening in Valerie's head. The way that I read the whole thing was Courtney. It was all in Courtney's head. She was the one actually in the institution. and. Valerie may or may not have also been an institution, but it was just all Holy being... smokes. That changes my read on it. I so so it was so at the end when it cuts back to the institution, that was Crystal Bernard. Yeah, that was Courtney. Right. So she I thought that was Cindy Eilbacher uh playing Valerie. 
I, I don't know. I, I felt pretty sure that it was Courtney who wakes up at the end and she's actually the one who's in the psychiatric ward. And then the driller killer bursts in and, and that's kind of it. That was the end of the film. Fascinating. Okay. Okay. It's Courtney in the asylum. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, so Courtney is re is, is sort of relitigating her experience. That's, that's how I read it. Yeah. Okay. And I, I okay. Do, so everybody, the whole family was committed is what we're saying. Well, maybe, All the but sisters again, are in this time. I don't know. That's the thing. Since this whole thing is painted as being in Courtney's head, is Valerie actually in an institution as well? Or are, is the entire thing just her imagining of what's happened after the killing? Like, I don't know. And, and because yeah. this entire story is in her head, it really is kind of left. Uh, like, I, I don't believe if since we're meant to based my on my interpretation of the end, when Courtney wakes up and she's the one who's in the institution, the entire story then essentially is in her head. And so that puts everything in the perspective of what is real? Any of this? I don't know. Exactly. Because then they have the drill burst through the floor and the credits roll, right? Like the drill isn't going to burst through the floor in in the in reality right so that's like yet another layer that's the top spinning on the table and never falling right like exactly exactly we, we don't know we don't know what what's next something is in someone's head somewhere that's i think what where we come out i think that needs to be on a shirt something is in someone's something head somewhere. is in someone's head somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so i i don't know i i suppose in the scope of it's all in her head. It's all a dream. It's all, you know, none of this is real. It puts the whole story into this situation of like, okay, well, what what good is it then? Is it it's all just and I know you have an issue with stories that take place in someone's head. And it's it, you know, we've talked about this in when we did our pre-show chat for our members at the beginning of this. Like, is it a cop-out? And to the scope of the story here. I end up really enjoying the story and I don't see it as a cop out because I actually kind of found like this was an interesting exploration to take a character from the first film who wasn't our principal protagonist, but the sister of our principal protagonist, somebody who was there, somebody who witnessed some of these horrors. And now we're looking at how that has affected her and we're seeing how she's dealing with it or maybe not dealing with it and, and how challenging it can be to go through a situation like that. And so. I ended up finding, you know what, like they did something interesting with this that I ended up enjoying. Does it always work? Not necessarily, but I didn't think it was necessarily a cop-out. I found it to be pretty interesting. Do you, I know the cop-out issue is is really your, uh, something you really hate with these sorts of things. Did you find this one to be a cop-out or do you think it worked? I generally do, but uh, but this one, I think they, the, what, I, what I look for in a movie to not feel so much like a cop-out is as we go back through, um, uh, as we go back through the the overall sort of course of the film, does it does it feel like they planted enough seeds that something is awry that that we know that we're in a space where something is not right with the world? And I think the weight of that discomfort is squarely on the shoulders of the design of the driller killer for me, right? The fact that he is so sort of otherworldly compared to the driller killer in the last movie, the fact that he's so flamboyant, the fact that he looks like he's he comes from a dream, 
he comes from a, uh, or a nightmare, you know, means that when I get to the end and realize that there is something going on in her mind, and this is really an exploration of her psychosis, I can connect those dots and it feels like they intended to do this all along. And that's the important part is that it feels like they intended to make it a, an exploration of what's going on in her head and it pays off when we discover that it is. So I actually, I think it works. I don't, and I'll tell you, I don't love this movie, right? Just because of the kind of movie it is. It's not a five star and a throbbing heart film. It, it is, but, but I don't feel burned by it. And I think that's a, that for me is a huge win. In fact, I would watch this one absolutely before the first one. <laughs> well, and I think that's an interesting element to this type of a story that is incredibly dangerous when you're going down the road of it's all a dream or it was all in their head of to your point it's like you have to be setting that sort of stuff up because if it comes to the end and suddenly you pull that the the mask off and and reveal oh it was all just in this person's head that can really throw some people and make them feel like they have been had in in a very unsatisfying way but to your point We've been seeing this figure in her dreams through the duration of the film. Like, he keeps popping up in her dreams over and over again. And we have really random things that it's like, how does this in any way make any sense? Like, you know, your bit at the at the start of the film about the girl and the massive, massive uh, pimple that she gets on her head, on her face. <laughs> And it's horrifying when we see, like, her face looks like it's, like, melting off with this giant pussy pimple that, I mean, it's so revolting, but clearly so not real. And so we're getting all of these crazy things with the driller killer popping up in the dreams, playing his rock music. And there's like, you know, the, the, the smoke is rising up from behind him in great backlit bits and stuff. So none of it seems real. And so when he finally turns up and we have the moment where Courtney is uh, finally in bed with Tom, right? It's Tom that she likes. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the drill like we see Tom in bed and the drill like bursts out of his chest and we see the driller killer there. And and like all of a sudden now he's in reality. And now we've got this whole big chase through the last half, last third of the film of everybody running from him and him just killing everybody left and right. And it, it, it plays well. It did make me wonder how is this guy suddenly crossing from her dreams to reality? And when I got that answer, it's all just in her head. It's like, okay, then I buy it. I, I bought it because they set it up for me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's Matt, actually, the dreamboat crush guy. I think that okay. was Matt. Matt. Okay. Um, I, yeah. So uh, I totally I have agree. Such a and, problem and I with think the it's... names in these films. I just got to say. Oh, God, forget it. They're all, <laughs> I can't even with the names, names to faces. They're all just, they're so generic. Um, the thing that I was worried about is that this movie was going to actually be a play on Nightmare on Elm Street, right? That it was the oh, sure. that this that suddenly Rockabilly was was uh, Freddy, and that all of this was going to be was going to be some sort of a swing. And I think to some extent it is. I, it's it's hard to ignore the fact that that you know this is a character who is dealing with haunting you know dreams. Um, I, I think that that is is probably the most sort of on the label way to look at it, and that that uh, ultimately, as the kills start to disrupt the third act of the movie, and then you discover that she's she's clearly processing something related to the um, 
you know, the assignment to the asylum of her sister and the fact that is she in an asylum herself? Like she's she's really traumatized. I think that makes it more valuable. The the degree to which the other characters play any role whatsoever of significance is like is I think a a bit of weakness for the film, and I think to the point of you say having trouble with names, I just have trouble with characters. They're all running about, they're screaming and killing, and I don't I don't have a great affinity for any one of these characters. You know whether we're talking about I don't know I, I just I have to look at a list of names and they mean very little to me. Sheila, Matt, Sally, TJ, Jeff. Valerie is, we know who Valerie is. Uh, Amy, like, who, who cares? Who cares about any of them? Should I care about any of them, Andy? Is that, that's what I'm asking. Do they work for you? Well, that becomes a big issue with this sort of story where these characters, even, even for ones who are returning from the previous film, which, uh, and again, it's hard because this was definitely an era and a type of film where you're not getting the same actors necessarily always coming back film after film. And so you have a number of recurring characters and they're all played by different people. And so it makes it hard when suddenly we have a Jeff in the last film and a Jeff in this film. Is it the same Jeff? I don't know, but they're both named Jeff. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, but all of these names, I have such a hard time keeping them straight because to a certain extent, the character design for all of the characters is, you know, I mean, there's always going to be one who's a little more flamboyant and and one who's a little more crass. And in this case, we have the one who's very concerned about her appearance, and she's the one who um, is concerned about a clogged pore. And of course, that's the one that gets the giant pimple. And, and so you have these little character moments that kind of help define them to a certain extent. But to your point, it's like, they kind of end up feeling largely like filler just to be part of the story overall. And somebody who's going to be here, well, for two things, one, so we can have sex scenes at some point and two, so we can have kill scenes at another point. Yeah. Right. But, but to a certain extent, just, just to be fair to this film in the genre, like I have the same issue with Friday the 13th and with Nightmare on Elm Street. It's like there are a certain number of these generic types of characters who are here really just to either be included in sex scenes or kill scenes. Right. Which is, which is of, it's of the film. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be that way in 1987 in a movie like this, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. What do we know of Deborah Brock? Where do you stand on Deborah Brock? Yeah, Deborah Brock directed this one, um, again, produced by Roger Corman, along with Deborah Brock. And uh, Deborah Brock also wrote this one. I, uh, she is not a name that is very familiar to me in the scope of um, a lot of the stuff that she's done. I know she's still busy working on stuff. You know, she's she's kept herself uh, pretty busy. But when you look at the list of stuff that she's done, none of, uh, it, it's a short list, first off, but none of it really stands out as things that I know much about. Yeah, I would say the answer is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, you know, the misadventures of the Dunderheads. Uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid um, is a is a 4.9 on the IMDb scale. But she was only a she was producer uh, on she, that. Yeah, co-executive producer on that. So, I, I, yeah. And, and that's like some of her stuff. Like she was also co-producer on Buffalo 66. So there are things like that that yeah. 
I'm not exactly sure how she ended up involved in those stories, but when it comes to the ones where she's more creatively involved, like I just know nothing. Yeah. The, my question for you is, in one part, she is, one of her credits is known, she's known as Deborah Spelling. Uh, is she somehow related to the Spellings? Um, is that the same Hollywood Spellings? Uh, I don't know. It just says on, on IMDb trivia, it says directed series TV as Deborah Spelling. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that at all. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, because that that would answer at least part of that question of whether or not she is, you know, how she ends up being executive, co-executive producing. Yeah. Um, but but the movies that she'd written and directed were were not very well received. And this one of the set seems to be one of the highest. And it's not. Yeah. yeah. See, what's interesting about her, though, and I suppose that this this is where she's better known for, although it's not the sort of stuff that shows up on IMDb. But she was very much looked at as a consultant, like a, she was called a, quote, film doctor. Uh, she was a consultant on, you know, over 20 uh, films and TV movies for uh, lots of studios, lots of indies, helping these features that were having some trouble with story and stuff and finding distribution, um, figure out what they needed to do. And so she ended up helping all of these. And apparently she's uh, been very successful at that side of things, of helping these troubled productions uh, be successfully distributed and, and premiere at some major festivals. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, that sounds perhaps maybe the area she is better known as. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting when people find that it they're is. good at something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, no disrespect to that part of the craft. It's it's huge. She's got coming up. She's got a, a kind of a big project. Montana Amazon Redux with uh, Olympia Dukakis and Allison Brie uh, that, you know, that maybe that will be an interesting thing. Certainly has people that I like involved in it. Well, I think that's a return to the whole misadventures of the Dunderheads story because it was also called Montana Amazon. Interesting. And so, yeah, the, the the Dunderheads in that film, they're an eccentric Montana family who've been in the mountains for too long. Now, one step ahead of the law, matriarch Grandma Ira flees to Canada with her two wildly dysfunctional teenage grandkids across the American West into a comic collision with the mainstream world. And that did also star Olympia Dukakis and Alison Brie. So yeah. it is it is the same thing. Most interesting about that is it's a 4.4 on the IMDb scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Is the Redux, like, are they just basically doing what uh, Coppola did with Apocalypse Now Redux? Like, is it basically a re-put-together version of that film that she did? In, yeah, right, um, right. Yeah, because that was uh, 2013 she did that, so 10 years ago. So, yeah, maybe she is returning to the well. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, what else you got? Anything else? As far as the overall style of the film, is there anything, you know, we talked a little bit in our last one, the Slumber Party Massacre, how there were some interesting elements in how, um, it, like, Amy Holden Jones had at least that one moment that was a really interestingly directed sequence and edited the way it was constructed where you've got you know the 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 guy knocking at the door Valerie inside watching TV you've got cut to the whatever it was on TV that she was watching you got the killer stalking the guy outside all of it intercut in a really exciting interesting way 
and it made for a lot of a lot of visual um, uh, points of similarity that was very exciting to see what she was doing there. Is there anything in this one that felt like that Deborah Brock had some standout uh, kind of directorial style or, or something with the, the, the filming or anything that stood out with this one like the last one did? You know, I want to say no. Uh, well, that's, this, this uh, felt- yeah, it's a bit of a leading question because I felt that, too. Like, yeah. I didn't feel like there was anything <laughs> exciting about this one. And the fact that they were filming in this kind of empty house because this dad had bought it and it wasn't really furnished also made it feel cheap because it's like it's kind of an empty house largely and it was kind of boring it's an empty house <laughs> it is there's nothing interesting about the setting it really did feel like they got a house on the cheap right yeah, it, it yeah. felt like they 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 just from a production standpoint they found this house in a new construction area and they were able to throw some empty boxes around and um, and make it part of the story. It did not feel earned uh, in terms of the, the production design. And, and I think that that it, it that lends itself to the rest of the the rest of the story. There is nothing that feels like it is it was particularly visually exciting or editorially interesting to me. There are some funny just funny bits of presentation, but all of that feels more uh, to the credit of the story and not the credit of just how the film was put together. Yeah, I think that's largely it. And, uh, you know, I will say, clearly they were putting some of their money into the the look and the style of the killer and the kills because, I mean, there was some fantastic kills with the drill coming through the chest and things like that. Like, they had some great bits of that. You know, I'm just trying to remember what else stood out to me. I, I felt like this was one that weirdly had some POVs that, like, to the point where I'm like, wow, we're getting a lot of point of views here. Or a lot of shots, like at the very beginning, we have um, uh, Courtney sleeping, and she's dreaming about her guy, Matt, as, as he's going running around playing football. And a lot of shots where it was the character looking directly into the camera as if it's kind of this point of view reaction of her. And I, I was like, there were a lot of those throughout the film. And I was trying to figure out, like, where what are we saying by having so many of these point of views over the course of the story? Maybe that was a, a stylistic thing that uh, Brock was trying to <laughs> kind of put in there in a way to kind of say, hey, this is all in her head. I don't know. That that would be the only thing I could think of. That would be a generous way to look at it because I like those <laughs> elements elsewhere. I feel like that's that's great. Um, I I like the idea of being in the place of the character, right? Like being in in her mind uh, as she's dreaming about this guy and how he spins the football on his fingers and all of that. Like that that gives me an early in the film affinity to this character that I'm supposed to feel an affinity to. So you know it works. It's yeah. good math. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't have a lot else to say about this one, but I will say there were some really funny lines. The funniest of which I felt was when the girls were having a pillow fight early, about a quarter or, you know, 25 minutes into the film. And at this point, you know, some of their shirts had come off and the guys are outside watching through the window, which is all very set up like the last film. And then one guy is just like, I didn't know girls really did this stuff. Yeah. It just, I mean, there were some serious lines that just made me laugh, laugh out it is, loud. That, that is one of the things that strikes me as really funny. And I guess we should probably talk about the, the earned nudity in this movie in terms of fitting the 
the the scope i mean the ridiculousness of the last film um there's you know we've got some of that here yeah yeah it's there's plenty of nudity throughout the film but and and again going back to the differences between this film and the last film the last film kept nudity in a lot of nudity but it did it in a way where it's like, you know, they're, all these girls are in the shower, so it's a shower scene, but they're all, you know, post-basketball game, they're all just cleaning off. It's kind of boring, and they're all arguing with one another. And so it's like, it, there's nothing sexy about the scene, and that was really interesting. This film played down the nudity to the point where we didn't even get it until almost a half hour into the film. And um, and we still get the scene where it makes no sense when they're at a slumber party and the girls all decide to take their tops off. And when the guys say that, it felt like the director commenting on the fact that, yeah, no, girls really don't do this sort of thing, only in these these sorts of movies for boys like you. Uh, and then it was a lot of the other stuff was just very it, it just it did kind of uh, I don't know, I guess it fit what we needed for the genre, you know. But it didn't feel overt in this one. It didn't feel, it's certainly not as overt. Uh, useful to the film? Probably not. But uh, but it certainly was not as, as you know, gratuitous as, and ridiculous as the last movie. Yeah. And again, I'm in big favor of just general nudity. I like a lot of people <laughs> not wearing clothes. That's, that's, that's very, but does it serve the story? Yeah. Less, well, less so yeah. in the well, first one. And in, in this film, like the first one, the thing about the driller killer in the first film, it really felt like commentary on kind of the the rapist sense of uh, kind of that sort of story where the drill represents this male phallus as he has to kind of like be plunging into these people, right? There was this that definite sense of that. Yeah. This one definitely still has the 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 drill, but because it's part of this rock guitar, it's it, I mean, I guess you could still read it. A, a drill is a drill. He is still plunging it into bodies and everything. But I don't know. Does it change any sense of that kind of the rapist element of this this man running around with this giant thing, sticking it into people that that feels different with this one because of the way that he's depicted? Yeah, well, totally. It just feels this this feels really comical, although and and we don't have the number of scenes with the drill between his legs, uh, you know, POV. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, like there just isn't that much of a they, they don't lean in quite so heavily on that that part of of the movie. And he's so comical, cartoonish that it's it's hard to over sexual uh, over sexualize this rockabilly character because he's already over sexualizing himself through the way he his body moves and his music. He's the the drill is sort of you know already a part of his overall shtick. It doesn't feel like they they had to lean too far into the r more rapey elements of the murders. No, yeah, and I mean I guess there's this sex, drugs, and rock and roll sort of sensibility to it, but at the same time, yeah. it never feels like it's leaning into anything that's very overt. Yeah. So. Yep. Um, one last little note. I just want to point out that our two police officers that we have in this story. Uh, you know, we didn't, this film, the first one was made before Nightmare on Elm Street, but this one was made 1987 after Elm Street had started. And we have, as our two officers, Officer Kruger and Officer Voorhees. And that just cracked me up when I heard those <laughs> yes, mentions of yes. his names. Yes, Not yes. to mention that the mom is Mrs. Bates, you know, and, and yep. it just like there were definite nods to some uh, horror classics that I thought was kind of funny. But you know what's funny about that? Like the nods to horror classics are also like I can imagine 
Courtney watching those movies at that age, right? Like I can imagine those names being pulled from her psyche, not as a necessarily as an homage to us, but as part of her internal reality of, you know, if she's processing this stuff and doesn't know names of cops that are in her own psyche, that she would pull names from pop culture. I think that the whole thing seems very integrated to me. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Well, it, it's a uh, definitely an interesting uh, shift to go this route with the story, and it certainly is going to make uh, talking about Slumber Party Massacre 3 an interesting conversation because uh, in the scope of what each of these films are doing and how they're moving from one to the next, that's going to be a story that uh, definitely feels different from uh, and kind of maybe separate from these first two. For sure. Yeah. All right, well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Max Hickson, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do at the box office. Well, for Brock's follow-up to Jones's original film, she actually had a little bit more money to work with. She had five hundred thousand uh, dollars, which is, I think, the last one was two hundred twenty. So, um, and five hundred thousand is one point three million in today's dollars. That is actually more than double what Jones had. The movie had a limited release, very limited, just like the first one, opening October 16th, 1987, opposite Barfly, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, Hope and Glory, Weeds, and The Whales of August. The movie went on to earn $1.3 million domestically, or almost $3.5 million in today's dollars, and that lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $28,000. Not nearly as successful as the first film, but still a success. And still gives us the third the third and Mm. we should just say for our members we are going to be talking about the 2021 remake slash revisioning slumber party massacre that uh is going to be our february member bonus episode released on the 28th so if you want to hear that make sure you uh go to the next com slash membership where you can learn about our membership uh tiers absolutely all right well i had fun with this one i'm really glad uh, I, I'm glad to see that they took it in a surprising direction. It's, I, you know, I don't know. I was looking at some of the, the reviews of this one at the times and a lot of people really seemed to not like this one nearly as much as the first one. They feel like the musical elements of it made it really annoying. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I felt like this one was, had some of that feminist vibe like the first one, but at the same time, I thought they were doing something interesting here. I, I liked it. Yeah, me too. I, I think you're right. And I, I think they uh, she was able to skirt a lot of the overt sort of feminist ideolo- ideological play uh, by making this so cerebral, like making it really a game uh, of, of heads, of headspace. And I think that, you know, for me, that worked. Yeah. 
Yeah, me too. All right. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, closing out this series, Slumber Party Massacre 3, directed by Sally Madison. Summertime. And the only thing the girls of Malibu Beach need is good music, good friends, and guys. So, what's it worth to you? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, a guy like that is just the kind of guy we need at the party tonight. They just invited the wrong guy. Began the most terrifying horror series of the decade. Now, the Driller Killer's back. Slumber Party Massacre, Part 3. Andy, how are we going to rate this? You know, if you've never heard of Letterboxd, then you are a new listener to this show. Uh, we love Letterboxd. It's the best social media network for movie lovers. And once you head over to Letterboxd and you fall in love with it, you can uh, become a member there by uh, and get save a little money by just visiting thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. That will whisk you over to our checkout page at Letterboxd, save you 20% off all your pro or patron level membership, removes ads, supports the fantastic Kiwi team making this service. We love it. You can find us at letterboxcom slash the next reel. And that is where you will find the rating for this movie. Andy, what are you going to do? Last time, I think we were three stars and a heart on Slumber Party Massacre. We both are three stars and a heart. I really find it hard to give this anything more than three stars and a heart, but I will say I'm going to match the first film. I'm going to give this three stars and a heart. I think that they both have something interesting that I enjoy. This one, I think, is just kind of more fun in, in a lot of ways, but I still enjoyed that first one. So I think I'm okay saying same rating, three stars and a heart. I'm, I am three stars and a heart. The real question is... Will I be removing the heart from the first film? Is that did it did this film in my cinematic relativism actually remove the the heart from the first film? I I don't think it did today, but on future watches, it it may. It may. Well, it'll be an interesting thing to discuss um, after we've discussed the third film and after we've discussed the 2021 remake slash revisioning and get a sense as to how you're feeling. Have you watched the third film yet? Or is that Oh, yeah. Is that I, done? Watched, I watched the third film, too. You watched both of them? Yeah, but I have, <laughs> I yet, can't I wait. have yet to watch the 2021 one. So, Me, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that one I haven't watched yet. The third one, after the second one, was such kind of a continuation of characters from that first film. It was just a surprising shift away from all of that. Yes. When we got to the third one. Although, weirdly... And again, you know, I, I don't know how to read the Massacre franchise Wikipedia page where they have like Russ Thorne, the driller killer, is the same character in the first film and the second film. Really? I really find that a stretch. But they say in the third film, Diane is the same Diane. Jackie is the same Jackie. And then they have Pizza Boy slash Pizza Girl as uh, credited as the same thing. It's like, well, they're totally different pizza people. Yes, there is a pizza person in the second film, but it's, I don't know. It's sometimes I, I question the way that some stuff is, is, uh, compared in, 
in the wiki. But but to that end, Sorority House Massacre Pete, parts two and three, those two seem like a very direct follow-up to the first Slumber Party Massacre, because Russ Thorne returns, same actor. Valerie returns, same actress. Courtney returns, same actress from the first film, Jennifer Myers. Um Diane is there. Gina Mary plays her again. Uh, Trish is there. M- Michelle Michaels plays her again. Kim Clark, Deborah DeLiso is there. And Coach Jana also returns from the first film to be in Sorority House Massacres 2 and 3. All of these people leave the slumber party and go to the sorority house? That seems like a much more direct sequel connection like i really need yes. to watch the sorority house massacre maybe we should just put that <laughs> on our future list to talk about what are that we trilogy. doing watching this movie why are we watching this movie i was all? really surprised to see so many people return for sorority house massacre <laughs> two and three that's amazing yeah okay so all right well that's where we are that is where we are uh well everybody don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And as I said, you can go to thenextreel.com slash membership and you can learn about our membership. You get ad-free episodes. You get to hear the pre-show chats that uh, that we've been talking about a number of times over the course of this episode. You get our m- monthly member bonus episodes. As I said, the 2021 Slumber Party Massacre is going to be released for February and we, you know, just all sorts of other old, like tons of bonus episodes that we've done over the years. So check it out. And, uh, you know, if you'd love to uh, get some more, we would uh, love to uh, we would love to have you. So what did you think about Summer Party Massacre 2? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. Letterbox giveth, oh. As Letterbox always doeth. It's so, so giveth. Does it ever. I, I actually, I have to tell you, I don't know, I don't know what the star rating is of my review. It's possible <laughs> it is a no star, but just awesome? Well, a lot of people I, okay. don't use stars, so it could just be a rating. All right. Why don't you go first? I did a three-star by Rylan Repulsive, who had this to say, add just a dash of Jim Carrey the mask to your typical 80s slasher, and you will have Slumber Party Massacre 2. This movie is nuts, and I love it. I do too, Rylan. I do too. This one, I didn't even find this myself. This was uh, Brian in the chat room who posted this, and I fell in love with it. It is uh, from Laird. It is a no-star review, but Laird says, I see. It's about the fear of losing one's virginity, but expressed as being drilled to death by a rockabilly Andrew Dice Clay. The cops in this movie have a booth reserved at Denny's. (laughs) Could not have said it better. That's worth three stars and a heart right there. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 